Sir Ernest Shackleton, intrepid explorer, led three expeditions to the Antarctic. Legend has it that he placed an advertisement in the London Times newspaper that said these words, men wanted for hazardous journey, small wages, bless you, bitter cold, long months of complete darkness, constant danger, safe return, doubtful, honour and recognition in case of success, with his address if they wanted to write in. Now, they haven't been able to find the original of this advert, so it may be that it's an urban myth. But even if it, if it wasn't, uh, if that advert never ran, that was true to Shackleton's mission. He was that kind of intrepid explorer. On his third trip to the uh, polar regions, his ship was caught in the ice and was crushed. They managed to escape by going onto a, a melting iceberg and from there got into their rescue boats and rowed 740 nautical miles to safety. That was Shackleton. And this advert is a fitting introduction to the mission that Jesus sends his disciples on in our passage. If you've closed your Bible, please open it again to Mark chapter 6, uh, page 1008 in the, the church Bible. And I just want to explain that today I'm going to preach in a very different kind of structure to this sermon because we've got a very different text that we're working with. Um, I'm going to br- briefly explain the whole thing. This is a bit like charades, whole thing, four words, you know. Um, three syllables, and, um, and then I'm going to give ten things that we learn about mission. Ten things that we learn about mission. But here's how these, these passages fit together. First of all, we have, at the beginning of chapter 6, Jesus, who has just been you know, surrounded by adoration and fans, and people pressing in on him, wanting a piece of the action. And even this woman coming to him in the crowd and creeping up behind just to touch his cloak because she knows that if she can, she believes she'll be healed. And the, the synagogue ruler himself, a man of great status and importance, coming and begging Jesus to come and heal his daughter who's at death's door. And this great story unfolding and Jesus using it as an opportunity to show that people really should have faith in him. After all of that, he goes back to his own hometown, chapter 6, verse 1, with his disciples. He begins to teach in the synagogue on the, the Sabbath, that's on Saturday, and his own people can't believe it, can't believe him. They just, they can't put together what they know about Jesus, the carpenter, or the handyman. That's how they know him, they've known him for 30 years, with who he is now. And they just say, well, wh- where did he get these things from? Where did this man get this kind of wisdom, and this sort of power? to do these miraculous healings and and signs and wonders. Isn't this the carpenter? It's the handyman. They even start naming his family members, his brothers, James, Joseph, Judas and Simon. And he's got sisters as well. Jesus is from a large family. And it says in verse 3, they took offence at him. So Jesus' own neighbours, friends, people he's grown up with are now offended by him. And he says, well, a prophet is not without honour except in his own town among his relatives and in his own home and it says he couldn't do any miracles there we'll come on to that a little bit later and then we have something which scholars call a sandwich I've mentioned this before but let me explain it again Mark takes the material that he's got and under the guidance and inspiration of the Holy Spirit he shapes his material as a skilled theological editor into this account that we have and Mark uses a technique that's been called a sandwich He starts a story and then he interrupts it. 
And then he comes back to it at the end. We've already seen one of these, the story of Jairus and the the 12-year-old girl who was at the brink of death. And then it's interrupted by the woman who's got the hemorrhage. And then we come back to the story of Jairus. And what scholars have realised is that these sandwiches are very carefully put together because the, the filling in the middle of the sandwich tends to interpret the bread on the outside. So the central section interprets the two halves that it interrupts. There are about nine of these sandwiches in Mark's Gospel, and we'll see them as we preach through the book. And here's one of them here. Not that obvious, but very important. It starts with Jesus sending out his 12 apostles, his disciples, on mission. And he gives them these incredible, uh, bizarre instructions. Take nothing for the journey except your staff. No bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but don't take an extra shirt. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, leave that place and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. And so off they go on this mission. And then it's interrupted with this really long flashback about John the Baptist, the longest account of John the Baptist's uh, martyrdom. John was the guy, you remember, who was the herald who announced that Jesus was coming. He was the great preacher in the wilderness. He baptised thousands of people. Everybody went to him, town and country, and he preached a message of repentance and preparing the way for the king. And he was out there in the wilderness for many years doing this wonderful work. And here he is, and we hear the the terrible, tragic story of John's sordid end in prison, where Herod, the son of Herod the Great, had uh, imprisoned John because of his wife's hatred of him and wasn't sure what to do with him. And then one night, at no doubt a drunken party, Herod makes this rash promise to his daughter, his stepdaughter-in-law, Give anything you want. Up to half my kingdom, I'll give it to you. So she goes and asks her mum, who's had it in for John all, these, all this time. And she says, I want John's head on a plate. So lo and behold, Herod is embarrassed in front of his, his guests. But he can't do anything else now because he's afraid. So he, he, he gives the order and John is killed. And there's the death of the guy who Jesus describes as the greatest prophet who ever lived. Now what's that all about? Is it just an interesting digression? Then Mark brings us back to the last part of the sandwich, verse 30. Have a look there. The apostles gathered round Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. The mission is still going on. Now that's the passage. That's how it, it, it all fits together. Let me just point out that Mark, the writer, has wrapped this story of the sending of the disciples on mission and their return around the death of John so that we can be helped to understand it. Herod's weakness and cowardice, Herodias' scheming, the gruesome death of John, all of this has something to do with the mission of the disciples. And what it's telling us is this. Here is the character of being on mission with Jesus. Here is the character of following Jesus on his mission. This is what Jesus sends his followers to do all of us. And so there are 10 things we learn. We're going to show you all 10 quickly and then come back through them one by one. Firstly, rejection. Secondly, urgency. Third, danger. Fourth, paradox. Fifth, ordinariness. Sixth, extension. Seven, devotion. Eight, practicality. Nine, location. Ten, 
triumph. Have you got them all? They don't all begin with D. They don't even form some kind of word by acrostic. I'm sorry. But I think you'll find them helpful as we go through because these are 10 lessons we learn about mission as we go through from Jesus in this section. So firstly, thank you, Frank, rejection. The first thing we learn about mission is you will be rejected, Christian. The hometown people are actually offended by Jesus. How could this be? Because Jesus came from very ordinary roots, very ordinary social background, and he was the local carpenter. So they thought they knew him. So their hearts say, who does he think he is? Their culture told them that someone from ordinary roots could not be someone great. That was a key part of their culture. Their beliefs from their culture told them to rule out Jesus' greatness. And yet, they saw these things that he was doing and they heard his wisdom, saw his power at work. And it put them in a really strange twist. What are they going to believe? What do you do when you bump into a discrepancy between your belief system and what you discover about Jesus Christ? Note well, these people decided against the evidence in front of them and they decided in favour of their prejudice. And as a result, Jesus, the only time it says this, Jesus himself is amazed at their lack of faith because they are unbelievable. It says he could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. Does that mean that Jesus was literally incapable? Well, I don't think so. We've seen this guy stop a storm with a word and calm the sea in the face of a complete lack of faith from his disciples. It's not that he depends on other people's faith in order to do what he does. It means Jesus can't bring himself to do any miracles here because Jesus doesn't do party tricks. He doesn't do miracles to try and persuade people to believe in him. The miracles are a demonstration of his kingdom. If you reject the king and his kingdom, don't expect him to try and perform for you. He moves on. Notice in this text, Jesus is amazed and he leaves them. Application. Is there anyone here like that? Anyone who's refusing to believe in Jesus because what you are seeing about him contradicts your own deeply held assumptions. I urge you to look at the evidence, to reconsider. It is not too late. We see here the names of Jesus' family. They too were not believing at this stage. They thought he'd gone mad. And it lists his brothers. One of these brothers, James, actually in later time, became one of the leaders of the church, a great follower of Jesus, the leader of the Jerusalem church. You can change, you know. You can change. But you must be prepared to consider the evidence. Christians, we will face rejection. Secondly, urgency. The mission is urgent. That's what all these instructions reveal. Don't take a bag. It's like flying with Ryanair. You know, you're not allowed to take a bag. Don't take your money because they'll try and take it off you. Just go. Walk out the door. Don't turn around now. You're not welcome anymore. What he's saying is, get on with it. Go, don't, don't hang around packing your bag. I wonder if I should take these shorts. Is it going to be hot? No, just get out the door. Go on the mission. This is life and death stuff. What's this about shaking the dust off your sandals? 
Partly Jesus is saying to them, look, it's so urgent, don't waste time. If people won't listen to you, okay, let them be. Just move on to the next place. And also in that culture, it was a dramatic gesture to the Jewish towns. It drives home to them the gravity of their rejection of the message. Jewish people who've been travelling in, in Gentile or pagan territory would come back into Israel and shake the dust off their sandals when they came back in. They were shaking off the dirt. To Jews, for the disciples to shake off the dirt in their town is a bit like a slap in the face or a glass of cold water. It basically says, if you reject Jesus, you're acting like pagans. Now what about us, Christian people? Should we do this? Notice the difference in context. They're on a time-sensitive mission. Jesus only has a few short years. He says elsewhere that his ministry is limited to the children of Israel. Jesus wasn't going all around the world trying to reach people. We, on the other hand, his followers, are sent on a global mission that is not under that time pressure. In in a sense, our mission is a long-term project. It could go on for centuries until the Lord returns. But it is still equally serious and urgent. Christian friends, let's not be lulled into forgetting this in our comfortable distracting lives. We too need to get on with it. We need to get on with the business of reaching out to those around who don't know Jesus. That's why it was so encouraging to hear Claire this morning. That's what they're doing over in Chalton. And not being afraid to let people know that the consequence of rejecting Jesus Christ and his message is catastrophic for them. Catastrophic. It is urgent. Thirdly, there's danger. The mission is dangerous. We read in the Bible that this world is under the domination of powers. Some of them we can see, human powers, secular states, governments, but also spiritual powers, dark powers that rule behind the scenes. This text is teaching the disciples will face rejection, all of us will, and some may face execution. There is real danger. Even the Son of God himself was rejected by his own neighbours. John the Baptist, the greatest prophet who ever lived, was rejected by the powers and put to death. We see here that secular powers don't like talk of another king. That's the problem in a lot of countries in this world. There are people in power who don't like talk of another king. They want to keep that down and suppress it. And we see also there are people who don't want to be confronted with their sins. That's the problem that Herodias has. She doesn't think John the Baptist is wrong. She just doesn't like being reminded that he's right. This is probably more the case for us in our Western context. We're unlikely to face physical harm, but people don't want to be told, reminded about their sins. So the lesson for us here is, if you go on mission for Jesus Christ, at some level you will have to die. Some level you will have to die. It may be for us the pain of social rejection and humiliation and shame and being locked out of relationships, cold shoulder. For some of you, it may mean physical harm. What does it mean for you to follow Jesus? Where's the danger? It takes various forms, but it's always there. Fourthly, paradox. There's a real paradox here about John the Baptist. 
it, it's that Herod loves to listen to. Have a look back uh, in, in the passage. Um, verse 20. Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. And when Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. Isn't this interesting? This king who doesn't believe still is drawn to this man because of his character and his integrity and his lifestyle. He's drawn to him. He can't understand everything he says, but he still likes to listen. The Christian message and the character of Jesus' followers is attractive and repulsive at the same time. There's a paradox here. It has a strange attraction and and a strange repulsion. People like to listen to things even though it disturbs them. But notice, Herod compounds his guilt. He loves John's preaching. He can listen to his sermons all day long, but it doesn't affect his behaviour at parties. So a fearless prophet is undone by a cowardly king who saved his face but lost his soul. What about you? I'm speaking to people here who are not... Uh, overtly Christians who wouldn't say they've committed to follow Jesus Christ but you're here still, you're, you're still here listening isn't that interesting <coughs> why won't you follow Jesus are you afraid of what people will think you need to look at Herod for all he knew in the end he was terribly lost and what about us believers we need to realise that the gospel message that we accept and teach is offensive. Why? Several reasons. It is simple and it lacks sophistication. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. A child can sing that and understand it. And in the face of the great intellects and the sophisticated people of this world, the gospel seems embarrassing, doesn't it? Don't you find that sometimes? So we Christians attempted to tweak it and make it acceptable to its culture despisers. There's a particular temptation in universities and other places of learning where you're around the really smart people. You want to kind of try and make the message more acceptable to its culture despisers, but be very careful. You alter this gospel and you will lose it. The story of Christianity in this great city of Manchester over the last 150 years is a tragic case study in this very thing. 150 years ago, there was a church right opposite Whitworth Art Gallery that seated 2,000 people. Its pastor preached there for 50 years. He was world famous. His sermons went into print and have been republished hundreds of times. He was well known around the world. It was so packed, this church, it was called Union Chapel, that people turned up very early hoping to get a seat and sometimes tried to bribe the stewards to get them into a good place. It's gone without a trace. I live near a street called Burton Road. Burton Road is famous for restaurants and bars. It's a great place to go on a Friday night. In the 19th century, Burton Road had four churches. Four gospel preaching churches. Do you know what's happened to those four churches? One is a mosque. 
One is an adult education centre, one is an office for the British Mountaineering Council, and the fourth has gone without a trace. It's been knocked down and flats have been built. What happened to Christianity in Manchester? Answer? People tried to tweak the gospel. They were embarrassed about its simplicity. They were embarrassed about the idea that we need Jesus' blood shed to pay for our sins. They didn't like it. They thought it was crude. They brought in a new theology. We sometimes call it liberal theology. And as a result, within 50 years, the church collapsed in this city. The gospel message we believe and teach is an offence. Secondly, the gospel message teaches things that fly in the face of your culture's most cherished beliefs. Our culture exalts science as the final arbiter of truth. But the gospel is unashamedly supernatural, isn't it? You read through Mark, there's demons cropping up all over the place. If only it didn't talk about demons so much. What would the scientists think? Our culture exalts personal choice as the final arbiter of what is right and wrong, with a few rules. There are very few taboos left. But the gospel has clear, unapologetic ethical demands, and it says that disciples must submit to them. Our culture claims that in order to be fulfilled, you must look inside yourself and find your own deepest desires and instincts and create your own identity and that that is the only way to be free. But the Gospel says the only way to be free is to look outside yourself, to look to Jesus Christ and follow him no matter what the cost. You must bet your life on Jesus. You must become a slave to Jesus. That's the route to freedom. You see how this Gospel is absolutely opposed to our culture's most cherished beliefs? So it's offensive. John the Baptist is a clear illustration of the ways in which a Christian is supposed to live and serve in the world. If you live a consistent Christian life, you'll find it makes you both attractive and repulsive to non-believing people. Now, if you only attract people, it may be that you're compromised or you've so hidden your Christian identity that you're actually embarrassed of Jesus. Your life may not be marked by holiness or conspicuous goodness that shines out if you're only attracting. But if you're only repelling people, if you're only repulsing them, maybe your impact on other people is off-putting. Maybe because you're too harsh. Maybe because you're too in their face. Maybe because your pride is putting them off. We should be both attracting and repelling people at the same time. It is a paradox. Fifthly, ordinariness. I have to say this because John the Baptist is really... uh, amazing guy, isn't he? But, you know, the disciples, I mean, they're a very mixed ability group. They're not all in the top set. We constantly see their flaws, their folly, and their foibles. They are not moral superheroes who never get it wrong. They're not highly skilled executives. They're not great pillars of faith who never wobble. You know what these disciples are like. The Bible's amazing. It's showing the failure of the disciples. They constantly mess it up, don't they? It's amazing that they actually wrote these books. Their laundry has been on view for 2,000 years now. And yet, this is one of the main things that people find offensive about Christianity. Christians. These Christians are not necessarily people of a higher moral achievement, are they? They're not necessarily nicer than non-Christians. They're not 
better people at first, but they are forgiven people. Christians are flawed, and this is offensive to many people in our society. And so people use the flaws of Christians as a barrier to believing. C.S. Lewis wrote an extraordinary book. He said it was the book that he hated writing the most. It was a book called The Screwtape Letters. It was an imaginary account of a series of letters from a senior devil called Screwtape who's writing to a junior devil, who I think is his nephew. And this junior devil is um, on the case of a patient who is supposed to, he's supposed to stop him becoming a Christian. But he messes it up and the guy becomes a Christian quite early in the book. And this is what one of Screwtape's letters says. I note with grave displeasure that your patient has become a Christian. There's no need to despair. Hundreds of these adult converts have been reclaimed after a brief sojourn in the enemy's camp and are now with us. All the habits of the patient, both mental and bodily, are still in our favour. One of our great allies at present is the church itself. Don't misunderstand me. I don't mean the church as we see her, spread out through all time and space and rooted in eternity, terrible as an army with banners. That, I confess, is a spectacle which makes our boldest tempters uneasy. But fortunately, it is quite invisible to these humans. All your patient sees is a half-finished sham Gothic building on the new estate. When he goes inside, he sees the local grocer with that rather oily expression on his face, bustling up to offer him a shiny little book containing a liturgy, which neither of them understand, and one shabby little book containing religious lyrics, mostly bad and in very small print. And when he gets to his pew and looks around, he sees just that selection of neighbours who he's previously avoided. You want to lean pretty heavily on those neighbours. Make his mind flit to and fro between an expression like the body of Christ and the actual faces in the next pew. And then the devil says this, work hard on the disappointment or anti-climax which is certainly coming to the patient during his first few weeks in church. The enemy allows this disappointment to occur on the threshold of every human endeavour. It occurs when the boy who's been enchanted by stories from the Odyssey buckles down to really learning Greek. It occurs when lovers have got married and begin the real task of learning to live together. In every department of life, it marks the transition from dreaming aspiration to laborious doing. The enemy takes this risk because he has a curious fantasy of making all these disgusting human vermin into what he calls his free lovers and servants. There's an imaginative recreation of a devil telling a younger devil, just take the person to church, that'll put him off Christianity. Because we're so ordinary. So let me appeal again to somebody here who's who's a a curious sceptic. You're here, you're looking in through the window of faith. Don't let, don't fall for screw tape strategy. Don't let the flaws and ordinariness of Christian people put you off the glory of Jesus Christ. Look beyond us to the one who is changing us. He is glorious. Sixth, extension. The mission that we've been given, we don't have to come up with it ourselves and write our own strategy and develop our mission. We basically have to copy Jesus. The disciples just do what Jesus did. Have a look in in chapter 6 again. 
Verse 12, they went out and preached that people should repent. Guess where they learned that from? Hanging around with Jesus, that's what he does. They drove out many demons and anointed with oil many people who were ill and healed them. You see, they just do what Jesus did. They go out as the voice of Jesus and the action of Jesus Christ. They go into the world and they live alongside them. You remember the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, who though he was the exalted Son of God, who lived in heaven for all eternity, he came all the way down to be one of us. He came and joined his deity to our humanity. He became an ordinary man. He took the form of a servant, the Apostle Paul says, and he, he went even further down. He, he travelled down to death, even to death on a cross, the death of a slave. Such was his condescension. So can we, his followers, not imitate Jesus by living alongside those people we're trying to reach? That may mean living in a place that you would not normally have aspired to live in. Living in a house or a flat that you would not have aspired to live in. But you're doing it to reach those people. It may mean spending your time with people you wouldn't aspire to be with. It may mean pouring your life out and your money out in costly service to those who don't give anything back. But that is exactly what your Lord did for you. And we are now to extend his work in the world. Seventhly, devotion. Devotion to the task is an absolute requirement here. Personal comfort goes by the board. Jesus says, you must be dedicated. This is not a jolly excursion to the best place you can find on Airbnb. They've got to go out and the very first house they find in a town, they just stay there. They don't move on to when they get a better offer. They must win people's confidence. They don't go really, really well resourced with an amazing backup team and loads of money. They go and they depend humbly on the hospitality of the people they serve. No one will take seriously messengers who claim to bring an urgent message of life and death when it becomes evident that their first concern is their own comfort. week before last I was um, in great country of Turkey, went to teach on a pastor's academy and one of the pastors showed me around this beautiful city and there took me down to the coast and showed me the beach and an astonishing coastline and the sea and in the background the mountains. I mean, just beautiful. And then he pointed me down to a place where there were some beautiful apartments right on the seafront with the most amazing view you've ever seen. And he said, we call that M Street because that's where the missionaries live. Missionaries live on M Street. Uh, the Turkish Christians can't afford to live there, but they have got money so they can. Now what does that do for the credibility of those missionaries there in Turkey, do you think? Jesus calls us to devotion. When he calls us he sends us out. We don't get to choose whether we're going to go or on what terms. He may send you next door. He may send you to death's door. Again, the Turkish guys I was with last week, one of them had his church bombed earlier this year. Another one gets death threats every week. Letters with pictures of swords and descriptions of what the person will do to him with those swords. That may come to them. It probably won't come to you. 
But we all learn here that in order to be of service to Jesus Christ and others, we're going to have to be devoted. We're going to have to die to ourselves. Eighth, practicality. The mission we see here is a preaching mission. They go out and preach and communicate the message to repent. But it's also practical. They go to places where there is evil and they cast it out. They go to places where there is hurt and pain and suffering and sickness and they heal, they serve. And these two things are often driven apart in churches, but we should not divorce what God has joined together. The mission is not just about word, preaching the good news, but also about bringing the effects of the good news into people's lives, deeds. The disciples help people practically. The disciples go out in servant mode. They address the felt needs of the people. Now notice the connection with physical healing here, restoration. So Christians, we are to be the greatest servants and very involved in alleviating suffering in our city. How are we trying to do that here, Grace Church? By the life of our church flowing out in midweek groups into the community in practical ways. We have a group that meets in the daytime led by Chris and Mooring. They serve the Compassion Food Bank in Moss Side. We have a group that meets in an area of Withington called Old Moat, serving Withington people by cleaning Old Moat Park and running a toddler group, Monday Monkeys. We have a group led by Joe and Gail, which serves international students and academics through hospitality and spending time with them. We have a group in Burnage that serves migrant peoples who need to learn English by teaching a free conversation class at the library. We have a temporary group called Base Camp, which is currently praying about how to engage with poverty. This is how we're trying to do it. But can you see it's only just the beginning? The mission is preaching, yes. But the gospel is a message that is also practical. It has hands and feet. Ninth, location. Jesus doesn't just commission his disciples to bless people if those people first believe and then pay them for their ministry. They are not sent to places that will be lucrative. They are sent out where there is the greatest need. Go, he says. Find those places and preach there. And you know, you are here in this place of great need. There is a call in our day and generation to see the gospel flourish again in the city of Manchester. I was talking to our senior saint, Donald Lees yesterday, very encouraging conversation. He moved here in 1963. He said, I feel like it's really taking off the last few years. Seeing the gospel flourish again. The church collapsed here over the last 150 years, but now Jesus is taking the city back. And the need is great. There are whole neighbourhoods where there is no gospel witness at all. There are council wards of 10, 15,000, 20,000 people where there is no church in that ward teaching the gospel. The vast majority of the establishment churches have lost the gospel. They still have the buildings, but the buildings are cold and empty because people only grow where the gospel is preached. And our vision here at this church is to see Manchester filled with communities of light. What does that mean for us? We want to be a church planting church. That's why we gave great people away to Redeemer, like Claire, and gave resources to help them go. Because there are people over in Chalton, in that area, who don't know Jesus, and they will get to know him now because of the plant. We also want to be a church that's not just for ourselves, but for the outsider. What does that mean for you? Practically, it might mean coming at 10 o'clock on a Sunday morning with a vision to talk to the outsider, not just your Christian friend. 
just walk across the room with a cup of coffee. Hello, I don't think we've met before. My name's X. Who are you? Just welcoming them in. Praying for people. And committing to the life of a small group in the week that is seeking to reach out, not just look inside. Location. And finally, triumph. Triumph. You might think, where's the triumph in this passage? You may think I'm clutching at straws because I need a positive note to end on. Isn't this the gloomiest picture so far? A long account of the beheading of John the Baptist. Here it is. You ready? Here's the silver lining. Verse 30. The apostles gathered round Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. Now why is that so encouraging? Because it says that the mission is going on. Even after the darkest day has been reported... The sick abuse of power by this puppet king, Herod, and his social climbing wife, Herodias. And this sordid display of the the drunken party and the girl dancing and the head being brought in on a plate. This grotesque display. Even after that, the beheading does not silence the word of God. Twelve messengers rise up and take his place. This massively pushes out the mission. One person is rejected, but the work goes on and it expands. The kingdom cannot be stopped by any human opposition. And even Herod himself, in verse 16, starts to worry. Maybe John has come back to get me. Maybe he's going to win in the end. And he was right. The Danish theologian Kierkegaard said, the tyrant dies and his rule ends. The martyr dies and his rule begins. This world is filled with people who want to stamp out the good message, but they will not win. When they finish their stamping, God is not through. The God who raises the dead will enable you, disciples of Jesus, to remain faithful. The mission ends in victory. Because this whole episode here is really a preview of what's going to happen at the end of Mark. Mark is drawing some amazing parallels. Like John the Baptist, Jesus too will be arrested unjustly and taken into a false trial. Like John the Baptist, Jesus will be betrayed by a conniving manipulator who's working behind the scenes, Judas. Like John the Baptist, Jesus' fate will be decided by a cowardly ruler, Pilate, who washes his hands and says, away with him. Like John the Baptist, Jesus will be taken to a gruesome execution, but one that's far more painful, a cross. And like John the Baptist, Jesus' body will be taken by his disciples and laid in a tomb. Herod is wrong that it was John the Baptist rising from the dead who was preaching. It was Jesus. But he was right about one thing. There will be a resurrection from the dead. And it will be Jesus. Even death won't keep him down. And that is our hope, Christian friends, as he sends us out into the world with a mission of guaranteed rejection, a mission of danger. It's that this world is not our home. Our death will not be the end. It'll just be the beginning because he rose from death and defeated it. In light of that message, how could we rewrite Ernest Shackleton's advert? Men and women wanted for hazardous journey. No wages, bitter cold, long months of complete darkness, constant danger of rejection. Safe return, guaranteed. Honour and recognition in glory beyond all you can imagine. Let's follow him. Let's pray.